Good morning. We are at the exciting part of the story. So we've been doing this for two months now, and uh, we are getting to the real climax of where this whole story is leading. You remember um, way back at the start of um, April, we began at Jerusalem, um, just outside in a, a town called Bethlehem where Jesus was born. And the wise men came and they stirred up the city of Jerusalem um, because there was a new king who was on the block. And then we followed Jesus as, he, as he's gone up to Galilee. He's spent time um, teaching. He's done this healing ministry. He's, he's put a whole heap of broken people back together. And now he comes back to where it all began, back to the city of Jerusalem, and once more, he's about to stir it up. And this time, it's going to be even more stirred up than the first time. This time, um, the whole city is going to be in a frenzy and everything is going to go crazy. This is, you thought Beatlemania was bad. This is like Beatlemania on steroids. This is the, the most crazy um, period of time. And it all happens in Jerusalem and it all starts here in Matthew 21. So grab your Bible and open to Matthew 21 and let's get into the what, what some call the Passion Week or the Holy Week. Um, this is the, the final week of Jesus' life leading up to his death and everything happens um, starting here. So we're going to cover um, chapter 21 through to chapter 23 today and this is all looking at Jesus entering Jerusalem in a, in a triumphant way, in a victorious way, as the new king. Um, and we're going to see how Jerusalem reacts to that. Let's start by looking at uh, Matthew 21, and we'll start with verses 1 through 11. It starts like this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to, we call it Bethphage. The, Jesus would have called it Bethphage. It means the house of the early fig, um, because they grew a lot of fig trees near there. He came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This is a, I think this is a cool story. It's like a code word. You go into the city and you say the magic words and you get the donkey. Um, I think it's, I don't know whether Jesus set this up beforehand or what's going on here, but apparently these are the magic words and, and you can get your free donkey that way. I've always thought it'd be fun to go into a car yard or something and hop into a car and when someone says, what are you doing? Say, the Lord needs this and see what they do, see whether they let you just take it. Anyway, what's going on here is, is um, he tells them to go and get this donkey um, and a colt and there's a reason for it. And Matthew says, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. For you, the reader, you should understand why Jesus is doing this, why this is happening. And he says it in verse 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna. Um, this is 
Sometimes the Bible translators, for some reason, they decide to not translate the words into English. And this is one of those cases. I'm not sure why, but they, they put in Hosanna. Um, it just means save or save us. Um, so they're shouting out um, for Jesus to save. Hosanna to the son of David. Son of David, what does that mean? Well, David was, of course, the king. And the son of David was the, the person who was sitting in line to become the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when, G and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So this is it, the moment we've all been waiting for. This is the end game. This is the final, but, uh, the, the final battle. This is the big confrontation that we've all been waiting for. Jesus rides into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives on a donkey and everyone's shouting out to him. And if you know your Bible, you know that Jesus isn't the first person to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Of course, in 1 Kings chapter 1, um, we have the story of David, the king, dying and his son Adonijah tries to become the king. He tries to take the throne. And so David tells his other son, Solomon, you get on a donkey and you ride into Jerusalem and show the people that you're the true king and that Adonijah, he's just a pretender. He's not the real king. He's not the one who has the authority. You're the one who is the true king. And Jesus repeats this scene. He's on the donkey, just like Solomon was, and he rides in, just like Solomon did, and the people shout out and praise him and rejoice, just like they did to Solomon. What's the message that Jesus is sending to the Pharisees here? It's very clear. He's saying, I'm the true son of David. I'm the true um, heir. I'm the true king of these people. You don't have the authority. You're not in charge. I can't... Um, uh, words don't do justice to what's going on here. The tensions are so high. This is the capital city. This is their biggest festival. This is all the talk of the town. And Jesus rides in and everyone's calling him the new king. And where does he go? Everyone's eyes are on him. Everyone's looking at what he's going to do and what he's going to say. And where does he go? The next story is he goes to the temple. Let's read verses 12 and 13 of Matthew 21. It says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. If you've ever travelled overseas, you know that when you have to exchange money from one currency to another, um, there's often a very high fee attached to that because you don't have another choice. You've got to change your money over and so you just pay whatever they charge. And so often people can very easily um, extort people and, and get more money than they really ought to. And so this was happening at the temple. So you remember what the temple looked like um, and inside the temple there's this big court um, where the people could go. Now previously... The, um, the money changers and the people who sold the animals had been outside the temple. But now um, Caiaphas, the, the high priest of the time, we don't know this uh, from scripture, but we know this from um, 
secular history, we know that Caiaphas actually moved the um, money changers and the people who sold the animals, he moved them to inside the temple. And we know that he would have gained a fair bit of money and he would have pocketed himself a nice little retirement fund because um, he did such a, a favour to the vendors and the store owners. So maybe this is Jesus seeing this for the first time. He goes into the temple and maybe he's used to seeing all of those stores outside, but now he sees them inside. And maybe that's what makes him mad or, or maybe he just, he just wants to show his true feelings about these stores. Ultimately, instead of being a place where people could worship God, the temple had become a place where people were extorting the poor and the vulnerable. The temple was no longer a reflection of God the temple instead was a symbol of greed and exploitation and moral corruption. And Jesus was mad at this. Jesus was angry at what they had done. And he goes after the money changers. And he goes after, and you notice what, what tables he goes after in verse 12. It says, he went after the seats of those who sold the pigeons or the doves. Um, why did he go after the pigeons and the doves? Did he just want to set the doves free? Or why specifically did he target those ones? Why didn't he target, you know, Matthew's telling us that he targeted those. What was the purpose of that? Well, this is why you need to read Leviticus, of course, because Leviticus tells you what the doves were for in the temple. Leviticus tells you that if you were too poor to give one of the normal sacrifices, that God made provision for you and that you could offer a pigeon or a dove instead you remember when Jesus was born, his parents went to the temple to offer a sacrifice and they were too poor to offer one of the normal sacrifices so they were allowed to offer just some birds instead. And Jesus is mad at these people because they are targeting the poor and the vulnerable and they are exploiting them and trying to get them to pay more money um, when they had just come to the temple to worship God. Can you think of any um, modern day examples of people who um, disgrace God's character for their own gain? Can you think of any people who exploit the vulnerable, exploit the poor and their faith and turn it into a profit? I'm talking about televangelists, of course. I'm talking about people who go on TV and tell you that you need to buy this much or you need to pay this much, you need to buy this book, you need to make this donation and then you'll be acceptable to God. And they're exploiting the poor and they're targeting the vulnerable, people who are afraid, people who are scared and they are taking their attempt at worshipping God and turning it into um, a, a point of self-gain, of self-profit. And Jesus is angry at it. I have no doubt that if Jesus came into this world today, some of the first people that he would target would be the televangelists that we see on the TV. And I fully acknowledge that I'm talking into a camera right now, and this is very ironic. Um, and, you know, maybe that's a, a point of self-reflection as well. We need to be so careful in the church that we don't become the people that Jesus was so angry at because they were putting stumbling blocks between people and God. And they were exploiting people who were poor 
and taking advantage of people who are vulnerable and turning it into a, a way that they could profit. And by the way, this isn't an excuse that you can get mad because Jesus can get mad. <laughs> Jesus got mad because he was so compassionate on the poor. Um, if you look back on the last couple of times that you got angry in your week, <laughs> or that I got angry, it's probably at that person who was driving too slow, or at that person who, you know, the, the um, customer support person at, the, uh, at my mobile phone company when I tried to call them up. I, I get angry at things, but it's, it's not out of this um, completely selfless compassion that I have for the poor, when I get angry at people and frustrated at people, it's almost always motivated by selfishness. And so we, we should never use this passage as a license to get angry at people. We should use this passage to warn us about the dangers of taking advantage of the weak. So Jesus actually here, he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7 is all about how the wicked, corrupt leaders in Jerusalem was so, so far from God that God couldn't dwell with them anymore. Uh, let's go back and read Jeremiah chapter 7. I don't need to give this too much commentary. Just read this poem for yourself and you'll see what Jesus is getting at here in Jeremiah chapter 7. And uh, we'll read verses 1 through 11. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. This is Jeremiah. He goes to the temple, and he's giving a message to the leaders of his day. It's very similar to what Jesus is doing. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You know, the, the people were saying, we're fine, we're safe because this is God's temple and we know that he's happy with us because this is where he dwells. And Jeremiah is saying, don't trust in these words. It says in verse 5, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Is this similar to what Jesus is dealing with? People who were oppressing the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, people who were extorting people who were traveling from a far um, place and exchanging their money, people who were selling the pigeons and the doves at an elevated price to get their own profit. This is exactly the same thing. And look at what Jeremiah says in verse 8 to 11. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. God says, I've seen it. <laughs> I know what you're doing. I know how you're exploiting people and it's not acceptable. And what's Jeremiah's message? His message is destruction is coming. This temple is going to be torn down. This city is going to be destroyed. And Jesus quotes from that and says, that's what's applicable to you rulers today. 
he goes on, and the next um, story that we have is the, the fig tree. Let's read verse 18 and 19. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. So he goes away and he stays in a, a town just outside of Jerusalem. And every day he comes back to Jerusalem and does some more teaching and some more work in Jerusalem. So he was returning to the city and he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Uh, <laughs> This is weird, right? Jesus walks into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's fine. We get that. Jesus goes to the temple and he gets angry at people exploiting others. We get that. And then Jesus is hungry and he finds a tree and it's got no fruit on it. He curses it and it withers. What's going on there? Is he on some kind of ecological devastation mission around Palestine? Um, is he trying to exterminate the fig trees? Is he bringing judgment on fig trees? This is a very confusing passage until you read the Old Testament and you realise Jesus isn't the first person in the Bible to talk about fig trees that don't bear fruit. In fact, when you go back and read through the prophets, you see that the prophets are constantly warning Israel that it has become a nation that is not bearing fruit. Let's just go back and read from Micah, um, the book of Micah, and we'll read from chapter 7. It's um, sad when I'm on camera and it's publicly exposed how long it takes me to find Micah. <laughs> Micah chapter 7 and verses 1 through 4. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. So you remember when you go through and you gather all the fruit and you get all the grapes and there's nothing left on the trees? He says, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires, the, the early fig, the bet fage, um, as we talked about earlier. The godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood and each hunts the other with a net. The hands are on what is evil and to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. This is a poem that talks about Israel as if it's a tree that's not bearing fruit. As if it's a fig tree that doesn't have any early figs on it. Jesus is not angry at figs here. He's making a point. He's making the point that um, just as Israel had been not bearing fruit in the Old Testament, so today Israel and the leaders of the Jews were not bearing fruit. What happened of old is repeating itself here, and he's pointing that out to them. Okay. And then he goes into the city, and uh, there's a question on authority. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 21. And look at what the Pharisees and the scribes have to say about this. Because at this stage, they're really upset at him. <laughs> he's marched on into their city on a donkey claiming to be the king. He's turned over the tables in their temple and he is bringing the whole crowd along with him. He's claiming to be the true king and so no wonder the, the rulers are upset at him for all of this. Look at what it says in verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, 
by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? So Jesus is claiming to be in charge and the Jewish leaders are claiming to be in charge. And, you know, to put it simply, there's not enough room in Jerusalem for the two of them. This town isn't big enough and this is going to be the ultimate confrontation. Who is in charge here? Who's the real leader? Who's the real ruler? Jesus is claiming to be king. They are claiming to be in control. And by the end of this week, the Jews are going to conclude that the only way to show that they're in charge is to kill Jesus. And Jesus is going to say, by killing me, you're not stopping me from being king. The kingdom of heaven, as we've already established back in Matthew 16, the grave, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus being put to death will not stop him from being king and from bringing his kingdom into this world. Okay, so they ask him what his authority is and where it comes from and he answers them. Um, in the next few verses. And then he gives them three parables in a row. So this is from verse 28 of chapter 21 through to chapter 22 and verse 14. And these three parables all have one core message. And the message is essentially that the kingdom of heaven is going to go to the poor, to the sinners, to the tax collectors and the prostitutes before it will go to the religious leaders. He says this very clearly in the first parable at the end in verse um, 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you didn't afterwards change your mind and believe him. He says it quite openly. This parable is about the fact that you will reject me and the kingdom of God will go to those who humbly accept me. The next parable he gives, he doesn't say it explicitly, but everyone knows what he's talking about. Skip down to verse um, uh, 45 and 46. He says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And then the final parable he gives. This one is even more cryptic, but if you understand the context, you see very clearly what he's talking about. It's a parable about a king. Who do you think the king is in the parable? It's pretty clear by this stage. Jesus is the king. And it's about a wedding feast. And these people get invited to a wedding feast and they reject the invitation. They reject the king. Who do you think that's talking about in this context? Very clearly talking about the people who rejected Jesus. Talking about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, um, the scribes. And the king, when he is rejected, he gets angry at them. Now, who's the angry person that we've seen in the previous chapter? It's Jesus. Jesus was the one who was getting angry at them in the temple. And it says in verse 7 of chapter 22 that their city was destroyed. Now, he'd been hinting at this all along by quoting Jeremiah, by talking about the things that Jeremiah was saying. And now in this parable, he's saying, because they have rejected the king, their city is going to be facing destruction. I know that this is a, a, a parable, but I think the, 
the message comes out fairly clearly of what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about, once again, there are people who will accept the king, there are people who will reject the king, and there are consequences to the scribes and the Pharisees for their rejection of King Jesus. So the Pharisees know that they have to do something about this. Jesus is saying parable after parable about them and about how their moral corruption will be not only um, their downfall, but the downfall of the whole city of Jerusalem and the temple itself. And so they have to do something to try and get him arrested or to try and get him to lose favour with the people. So the next thing that we see in chapter 22, verses 15 through 46, is the questions that are asked towards Jesus. They want him to say something wrong. They want him to say something controversial. They want to be able to arrest him for some reason. So in chapter 22 and verse 15, it says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. We've got to stop this guy somehow because he's just getting more and more people following. And his claim to be king is is not being suppressed, is not being counted. So they ask him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And his answer is profound. His answer is um, a complete, wonderful answer to the balance of paying taxation, of your responsibility to your government, but also your loyalty to God. The Sadducees come up and they ask him about the resurrection, a really contentious issue in first century Judaism. And he gives them a profound answer that they couldn't have a comeback to. And then a a lawyer comes up and the lawyer comes to test him in verse 35 to 40. And he says, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus, again, gives a profound, insightful answer. And then (laughs) it seems like they've run out of questions for a bit. They're stumped with all of these good answers that they're getting. You can just see the, the look on their faces. Their jaw is dropping. Their eyes are widening when he just keeps on giving these incredible answers that they're not expecting. In verse 41 and following, Jesus then turns the tables And he puts it on them and he says, he asks them a question about the the identity of who the Christ is. And this is pointing to the fact that the Christ, the King, the Messiah, that he is more than just an earthly king, he is in fact God himself come back to reign. And the question is so hard that they can't answer it. In verse 46 it says, And no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. You know, the more questions you ask, the the bigger the hole is that, that you're digging for yourself. So they decide, we just can't talk to him anymore because he keeps on winning these verbal um, jousts that we're having. And then Jesus, after he silences the Pharisees, He goes on to his final sermon. This is the final public teaching that he does, and it's all of chapter 23. After this, in chapter 24 and 25, he's just going to be talking to his disciples privately. This is his final, the culmination of everything that he's been teaching. It's been leading up to this final climactic sermon. And the sermon is not about um, a feel-good, lovey-dovey message. It's not warm Jesus who loves everyone and embraces everyone and just wants everyone to get along. This is confrontational Jesus. 
This is Jesus who has his voice raised and is in no unclear terms denouncing the wickedness that he sees around him. And I know that our world prefers to hear the lovey-dovey Jesus. And I know that the Sermon on the Mount Jesus is a lot more palatable for all of us. And maybe confrontational, um, sticking it to the man Jesus is a little bit too uncomfortable for what you'd like. But I'm not telling you what I want Jesus to be like. I'm just telling you the Jesus that Matthew is presenting to us. And chapter 3, I'm not going to read it all. I hope that you read it this week. Chapter 3 is a brutal excoriation of the Pharisees and their completely impure and ungodly way of life. Jesus calls them blind. He calls them fools. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them children of hell. He says they appear righteous, but inside they are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. His words, not mine. Um, this, is, this isn't friendly banter. This isn't a, a nice debate between two friends who are getting together. This is outright war that he's declaring. This isn't a light rebuke. This is a heavy um, confrontational criticism. And Jesus is passionate about these things. And, and sometimes I think that Jesus is a bit, he's a bit too passionate for us. Um, our culture, we have a she'll be right attitude. And sometimes that's for other people as well. Oh, they, they can do whatever they want to do. They live their life. They do what they want. Um, we just, you know, we just sit back and take it easy. Apathy is not a legitimate moral position for followers of Jesus. If you look at the lives of other people and you, and you don't care about what they're doing and you, you're not interested in, in calling out the wickedness that you see around you, maybe Jesus isn't for you. But why does, Jesus, why does Matthew want us to read this passage? Does he want us to read it so that we can feel good about ourselves? Does he want us to read it so that we can point the fingers at others? I don't think that's what Matthew is doing here. I don't think he is giving us a license to criticise and judge other people um, and to point out other people as hypocrites. I think that the reason why Matthew is including this is so followers of Jesus can see exactly the type of behaviour that Jesus was opposing and to make sure that all followers of Jesus know very well that these are the attitudes and these are the behaviours that put Jesus on a cross. This is the kind of life that you lead if you want to be an opponent of Christ and his mission. If you want to stand in the way of Jesus, do the things in Matthew 23 that the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. But if you're on Jesus' side, then read Matthew 23 soberly and seriously. Read it with the maturity and the discernment to have that self-reflection, to be able to truly look into a mirror and say, where are these qualities in my life so that I can make sure that I banish them from my life, so that I can, when I see them in myself, I can run as fast as I can in the other direction. And I take this seriously because this is directed at religious people like me, at teachers like me, at people who tell other people what to do like me. And people who stand in front of a camera and are well-dressed and look righteous on the outside 
and that people don't know what goes on when the, the camera is turned off. This chapter is, is directed at people like me, and when I read it and I say, yeah, take that, Pharisees, take that, scribes, Jesus took you down. And when I read that without any self-application at all, I'm completely missing the message, and I'm becoming exactly like the people that Jesus criticised. These attitudes are not innocent. These attitudes are what killed Jesus. And if they can kill Jesus, just think about the damage that they can do in the church today. Just think about the damage that they can do in your family with the relationships that you have in your life. I hope you read through Matthew 23 this week and I hope you see it's not a chapter for people who lived 2,000 years ago. It's a chapter for people who live in Toowoomba, Queensland, who live at my address in my house and live my life. Here's our main point from these chapters to sum it all up. Jesus has announced that he is the king. And the humble have accepted that. And the humble love it. And the proud and the people with sin in their life, the people who are living in luxury and the people who are taking advantage of others, those are the people who don't want Jesus to be king. And you and I have to figure out which camp do we belong to. Are we on King Jesus' team? Do we put our allegiance in King Jesus and say, yes, he is the king of the world and he's the king of my life. And I need to change my life to submit to his kingship. I need to submit myself to him to enter the kingdom of heaven and to live under his reign and his authority. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus wants to know about Jesus. And Jesus tells him, you have to be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, they can't see the kingdom of heaven. If you haven't submitted to King Jesus, if you're still living with someone else or something else as the king of your life, whether it's your pride or your ego or your possessions or your, your wealth, your riches, your hobbies, whatever it might be, if you haven't submitted to King Jesus and dethroned those things and enthroned Jesus as king in your life, why don't you do it? Why not today? Why don't you join his kingdom and serve that humble king? Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. That's the king that I want to serve. If you want to serve that king, I encourage you to take the steps to follow him, to submit to him, to become part of his kingdom today. And if you want to study those things, please reach out and we would love to study that with you.